The Bible is filled with many pictures of true faith, but they're not all the same. In some, we see examples of great faith and in others, little faith. Thankfully, it only takes a little faith to save, but as believers, we aspire toward great faith. So what is the difference? What makes for a great faith? By way of example, you can consider Abraham, who trusted God completely when he promised to give him a son in his old age. Meanwhile, Sarah had a little faith as she laughed at the same promise. Think of Noah, who had great faith as he obeyed God and built the ark to be saved from the flood. Meanwhile, Gideon had little faith as he needed multiple signs to take God at his word. You can think of Mary, who had great faith as she fully submitted to the Lord's will for her to bear this virgin-born Messiah. Meanwhile, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, had little faith as he could not believe God would give him a son in his old age, even though he was praying for it. There are countless more examples like this. What's the difference, though? As scripture was written for our instruction, what do we learn about the difference between great faith and little faith? The difference seems to come down to the difficulty of promises believed. Remember, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God in his word has given us many truths and promises. These become the, the things we hope for, things hoped for. Much of what God has said and promised, though, yet remains unseen to us. But faith is taking him at his word and believing in these things unseen. This faith is not blind because it rests on revelation, the word of God, but also does not depend on seeing because we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. So I think the difference when it comes down to it, the measurable difference between great faith and little faith has to do with the difficulty of the truths or promises believed. In the examples we gave of Great faith, Abraham, Noah, Mary. They all believed the unbelievable, things never seen or done before. A son in old age, a worldwide flood, a virgin birth. But based on God's promises, they believed even when everyone else thought they were crazy. Meanwhile, Sarah, Gideon, Zacharias, they also were told unbelievable things, but they proved too hard to swallow. What God told them was was too big a bite of faith for them. Now, they still ended up believing, but not without some doubt. Theirs was a little faith. And that distinction remains today, that there's a whole host of truth God has given to us in his word. Do you believe it all? And how much do you believe it? How deeply do you take God at his word? Faith itself is meant to grow. The disciples of Jesus themselves were often found to have little faith. One time they cried out to him, though, and they said, Lord, increase our faith, Luke 17, 5. That's a good prayer. That prayer was answered. Their faith did grow over time. We should have the same prayer and the same desire. Lord, increase our faith. It's only right for believers to aspire to greater faith. And we're meant to look to those who have come before us, a great cloud of witnesses, be encouraged by their example, that we might run our own race with endurance. That's what we're going to do this morning, to be encouraged by a a very special witness of great faith. When you think of the top examples of faith in the Bible, these are the names that come to mind. Abraham, Noah, uh, Mary. We could easily add Moses, David, Peter, many others. But uh, there's one special figure who would be 
pretty close to the top of this list. This person was not an apostle. He wasn't even a Jew. He was a Gentile, and at that, a Roman. We don't even know his name. But Jesus himself testified that in his day, he found no one with greater faith. This man's witness is recorded in scripture that we might gain insight into what makes great faith and that we might likewise cling to the Lord without wavering. And this this witness is found in Matthew chapter 8. So you can turn there now, open your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 8. We recently turned a corner in our own study of Matthew's gospel. Last week, we began chapter 8. After spending much time considering the words of Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount, we're now focusing on the works of Jesus. Chapters 8 and 9, Matthew resumes the narrative, and he's showing us what Jesus was doing during his Galilean ministry. In that regard, Matthew specifically focuses on the miracles of Jesus as the divine Messiah. Jesus came both to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to heal every kind of disease and sickness among the people. It says back in chapter 4, verse 23. Christ's healing ministry was intended to be the sign of his identity as the Son of God. In an irrefutable way, he was putting his authority on display. We'll see in these chapters time and time again how the works of Jesus were meant to attest to his identity and his authority. However, so many people... So many of the people, they saw these signs of Jesus, but they did not have eyes of faith to accept what it meant about Jesus. Most people he encountered were of no faith. They were just unbelieving. There was a small portion who had faith, but of them, the great majority had what we might call a little faith. They believed Jesus was someone great, but they wrestled with these questions and doubt because these signs seemed to point to the unbelievable. I mean, could this Jesus really be God come down? Emmanuel, God with us, is, is that possible? If the measure of great faith is believing the most difficult truths, that was one of them. But here in Matthew 8, we find someone who, who believed the unbelievable about Jesus. And as such, we find an example, not of little faith, but of great faith. Only, again, this example comes from the unlikeliest of sources a Roman centurion. This is not a Jew. This was a captain of the detested, occupying Roman forces. And as such, he did not have the advantages of the Jews, the law, the covenants. Nevertheless, he evidences a greater faith than all of them. So how can this be? His testimony is found in Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. This passage is still ultimately telling us something about Jesus. Here, Matthew's recording a second miracle of Jesus, and that continues to exhibit his divine authority. But this passage stands out because it includes Christ's own commentary on all things going on and on the centurion's faith. And being recorded for our instruction, that means there's much here for us to learn, both about the Lord and about what he says is true and great faith. And that's what we want to do. There's a lot of ground to cover. So like last week, we're going to read as we go. I'll give you an outline to help you follow. But let's just walk through this second passage in Matthew 8 that we too might aspire and attain great faith. What makes for great faith? 
Let's try and find out. This passage begins with, you might say, a vital request. So number one, a vital request. And let's start reading verse five. Again, we'll read as we go. Matthew 8, verse five. It says, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Verse five takes us to a new setting, Capernaum. Capernaum was an important port town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Having already been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus made his new home base of ministry here in Capernaum. This is where many of his top disciples were from. That includes Matthew, who's writing Matthew. The city sat on a trade crossroads, and the the Romans had a tax-collecting station there, which Matthew would eventually leave to follow Jesus. That's chapter 9. But if you know anything about governments, you know the thing they they love the most, taxes. And especially in the ancient world, wherever there was a tax center, there would be troops to guard it. And that was the case in Capernaum. The city supported a Roman garrison, and the leader of that garrison most likely was this centurion. You can think of a centurion, someone like a, a captain in our army. He was the leader of a century, meaning 100 troops. That's why he's called a centurion. Centurions were the backbone of Roman military leadership. They were the ones really keeping order and discipline amongst all the troops in the empire. Now, what do we know about our centurion here in Matthew 8? His his name is not recorded. We know very little about him. The text does reveal one thing, namely that he had a a special concern, uh, concern and affection for his servant. His servant is lying paralyzed at home, being fearfully tormented. Who was this servant? Now, the centurion does not actually use the the term for servant. He actually uses a Greek term for child. And it's a word that can refer to a child of any age, from infancy to young adulthood. Now, we we know that this child is not the biological child of the centurion, because in Luke 7, the parallel account, he makes clear that this child was the centurion's slave. Luke uses the Greek term doulos. It's very common in the Roman Empire for centurions to have slaves serving as attendants. What was not common was for centurions to have any affection for their subordinates or slaves. Most Roman officers appeared quite cold and heartless toward their soldiers, their slaves. For one of them become sick, paralyzed, about to die would not have been cause of much concern. But it was for this centurion. We don't know how or why, but he held this servant in high esteem. This young servant had endeared himself to the centurion such that he had become like a son to him. Most centurions were not allowed to marry or have a family during their years of service. So this servant child could have been the closest thing to family the centurion ever knew. Already, though, this centurion stands out just in his affection, his concern, his compassion for his lowly servant. The servant himself is in dire straits. The text says he's lying paralyzed at home. This is the word for paralytic, which describes a whole class of illnesses that deal with, obviously, paralysis. You can think of, for example, cerebral palsy where the brain loses the ability to control the muscles. In the case of the centurion's servant, 
We don't know any more details except the fact that he was greatly suffering. This was at an advanced stage. He says this servant boy was fearfully tormented. That word for tormented is sometimes translated torture. This is a world before painkillers. So he is enduring unrelenting pain and suffering. Luke's gospel, remember Luke is a physician. He's the one who says this boy was near death. He was about to die. With paralysis, maybe he's losing the ability to breathe, or to swallow. He's near the end. This centurion resided in Capernaum, as did Jesus. Now, Jesus is often out and about, but on this occasion, he knows Jesus is in town. So in desperation, he reaches out to him. Like the leper in the previous passage, we see the centurion approach Jesus with a humble confidence in his power, but also not presuming upon his will. He doesn't ask him a direct question. He merely states the fact of his need, also like the leper from the previous passage. But in contrast to the leper, this centurion's request is vital, meaning if Jesus does not come right now, he's going to die. This is do or die, life or death for the servant. As with the leper from before, we're left to wonder how Jesus will respond. I mean, no Jew would have expected Jesus, a respected teacher, to help either of these people. On the one hand, you have a leper. On the other hand, you have a Gentile and a Roman officer. I mean, both were the epitome of uncleanness. It would be like a photo finish to determine which was, or who was less worthy to the Jews. But just as Jesus showed compassion to that leper who was of great faith, so he shows compassion to this centurion. And so we see, secondly, a compassionate response. A compassionate response. Very straightforward in verse 7. It says, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, as with the leper, the ability of Jesus to heal, it's not a question at this point. We, we've seen it. Jesus has proven his ability to heal. It's just a question of his willingness. He's able, but is he willing? But once again, yes, no surprise here. As with that leper being moved to compassion, he is willing. So he replies in a straightforward manner. He says, I will come and heal him. It's emphatic though. He says, I myself will come. There's no rebuke from Jesus saying, you're, you're a filthy Gentile. I didn't come for you. There's no disdain from Jesus saying, you're, you're a Roman officer. You're the enemy. I'll never help you. No, it's rather in a simple manner. He says, yes, I will help. I will come and heal him. Now, at this point, we already know we're going to see Jesus heal this servant boy. It's not a question. For Jesus to heal a paralytic, it's almost normal now. He does that often. But this healing would require Jesus to do something different. And that would be to enter a Gentile home, which was forbidden. The Jews taught that to enter the house of a Gentile was to contract uncleanness. If you recall, when Jesus was on trial before his crucifixion, the Jewish authorities, they led him to Pilate for the Roman side of the trial. They took him to the praetorium, but they themselves did not go inside that they would not be defiled so that they could keep Passover, John 12, 28 tells us. Likewise, Peter once, he attested to the traditions of the elders when he said this in Acts 10, 28. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew 
to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Now, that's not from God's law. On that occasion, Peter was being challenged by God himself to, to shed these traditions of the elders and their unjust bias toward the Gentiles. As a result, on that occasion, Peter entered that house. That man's name was Cornelius. He became the first Gentile convert in the early church, and he too happened to be a centurion. It's interesting, every time a centurion is mentioned in the Bible, by the way, they're men of great faith. Like the man at the, at the cross when Jesus was crucified, the first person to confess Jesus was the son of God, who was who? A centurion after Jesus died. But Peter went on to say this. He says, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. As for Jesus, he's already shown us he has no regard for the baseless traditions of the Jewish elders. He was willing to break their taboos. He was willing to touch a leper. He was willing to take on our our uncleanness that he might make us clean in return. Just as Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, so I'm convinced he would not hesitate to enter this Gentile house if that's what it took to show compassion and heal someone who was sick. But on this occasion, Jesus would never make it in that house. Number three, a profound recognition. This really is the heart of this episode, verses 8 and 9, a profound recognition. Verse 8, but the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. We can stop there. First, you can point out the meekness of this centurion. He says, I am not worthy. This word means sufficient, adequate, like when John the Baptist said he was unworthy to even remove the sandals of the Messiah. This centurion believed he was too unworthy to have Jesus come under his roof. Now, you might wonder, like, what's, what's behind this? I think a bit more background will help you make sense of this. Because Luke, in his gospel, the parallel account gives us many more details. Matthew is giving us quite an abbreviated account. But in Luke, we learn that the centurion did not actually approach Jesus in person, but through some intermediaries. Luke 7 verse 3 says this. It says, when he, the centurion, heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. The centurion had employed some Jewish elders to make this request of Jesus on his behalf. Now, this is no contradiction with Matthew. Matthew is simply giving us the cliff notes, the abbreviated account. I mean, we make use of abbreviated speech and storytelling all the time, leaving out details that just aren't relevant to our point. As an example, Matthew 27, 26, it says literally that Pilate scourged Jesus. Now, we know Pilate was not the one actually whipping Jesus. In reality, Pilate gave the order and handed Jesus over. But those details aren't relevant, especially when you have limited parchment to write on. What's relevant is that Jesus was scourged with Pilate's approval. So that's all he writes. Likewise here, Matthew, he's, he's summarizing this account. He's just giving us the centurion's message because that's what matters to him. He wants us to focus on the faith and nationality of the centurion, which will tie into his message on Gentile salvation, which is coming up. But the messengers are just irrelevant to this point. All right, so that's all fine. But now that we know these extra details, it does give us some insight. We consider Luke's account. 
we know how truly unworthy this centurion felt. Because in Luke 7, it, he, it tells us what those Jewish elders said to Jesus. Just as the centurion was interceding for his servant, so these elders were interceding for the centurion. And here's what they first said to Jesus. Luke 7, 4 and 5. It says, when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. So we do learn a little bit more about the centurion. He was the one responsible for building the Jews, their synagogue in Capernaum. If you were to go to the the long lost ruins of Capernaum today, what little is left, you would find some pieces of this synagogue still intact. We don't get the impression, though, that he built this synagogue just to make the Jews happy because they attest that he loves their nation. I think this means most likely that this Gentile, or rather this centurion, was a God-fearing Gentile. A God-fearing Gentile. That was a specific term the Jews gave to certain Gentiles. A God-fearing Gentile. Who were these God-fearing Gentiles? The Jews recognized that there were some Gentiles who came to believe in their God and who wanted to worship their God. Now, like the Jews still kept these Gentiles at arm's length. It was rare to have a true, full convert. But they did not fully turn them away. They accepted their support. And God-fearing Gentiles were allowed to attend synagogue. Sit in the back, remain silent, but they could attend synagogue hear the scriptures. This centurion, we have to assume during his time stationed at Capernaum, somehow, some way, came to learn of the God of the Jews and came to believe in him. There's no other way to explain how he loved their nation, and there's no other way to explain how these Jewish elders viewed him so favorably. I mean, do you see how these Jewish elders in Luke's account, they're saying that this man is worthy for Jesus to help him. He's a Gentile and a Roman officer. Like the most hated person, but they find him worthy. That, that's a huge statement. That's saying a lot about this man and his, his faith. They believe he's worthy, but once again, this centurion himself does not believe he is worthy. That's why he did not approach Jesus in the first place, it says. He was just a Gentile and a Roman officer at that. He knew how the Jews, especially rabbis or teachers like Jesus, felt about Gentiles. He was unworthy. So he, he sends these intermediaries to appeal to Jesus on his and his servant's behalf. And note, he does not send fellow soldiers. He sends Jewish elders, his friends. Now to this appeal, Jesus responds positively. He says, all right, I'll, I'll come to your house. I will come and heal your servant. So Jesus and the elders, they start making their way over. Luke 7 tells us. But Luke 7 adds that as they come near to his house, The centurion sees them, and he sends another group of friends out to give another message to Jesus. And he says, the friends say this, Luke 7, 6. They say on behalf of the centurion, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So again, you can see how how I say it. We, We can see how how truly unworthy this centurion felt. He felt he was unworthy to go to Jesus in the first place, 
which is why he used these intermediaries. And then when he learned Jesus was on his way, he, he certainly felt Jesus unworthy for Jesus to come under his roof. Was this purely ethnic? Is he showing sensibilities to the Jews, knowing he's a Gentile? Or was this also spiritual? Was he aware of his spiritual uncleanness before the Holy Lord? We don't know for certain. But we do know this centurion was meek. He was, per the Beatitudes, poor in spirit. He had a high view of the Lord. He had a low view of self. But as Jesus approaches his house, it quickly becomes evident this centurion has painted himself in a corner. He's in a bind. Like he believes he's too unworthy to go to Jesus. And he's too unworthy to have Jesus come under his roof. But at the same time, his centurion is, or his servant is there, sick, paralyzed. He can't leave the house, cannot be taken out of the house. He's too sick. He can't be brought to Jesus. So like, how is this going to happen? Jesus can't come in. The servant can't go out. What's the remaining option? What did the centurion expect Jesus to do? Now, whether this was his desire all along or just sprang up spur of the moment, we don't know. But as Jesus approaches, he knows there's only one remaining option given his unworthiness. He finally lays his cards on the table. And with them, we get one of the greatest expressions of faith in all the Gospels. Verse 8. It says, but the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. What the centurion expects from Jesus now is clear. He wants his servant to be healed, but he believes that all Jesus needs to do is just say the word, just, just speak it. This means the centurion believes that Christ's power is so great, he can heal long distance. He can bring about his will just by speaking a word. That's not a small belief. This is the epitome of power. What else is more characteristic of God, his power, his omnipotence, than his ability to bring about all his will just by speaking it? That's part of the essence of God and his power. It's God who says, let there be light, and then there's just light. He's the one who just speaks all things into existence. That power does not belong to any man, not even close. We can't do or build anything with our words. All all we tend to do with our words is tear down. But though he appears as a man, this centurion believes Jesus is someone more because he's attributing to him divine power. Most people back in that day were either superstitious or ignorant. And that's why they believe that Christ's power resided in his hands, his touch, or even his clothes. And that's why on several occasions, people snuck up and and tried to touch him to get power. But his power did not reside in his touch or in his garments, but in his word. This is the one who claimed to come down from from heaven to do the will of the Father We don't know how much this centurion heard the teaching of Jesus or witnessed his miracles, but he knew enough to believe that in Jesus was God's power and authority to do all his will. And this centurion, he knows a thing or two about authority. That's what he says in verse 9. He goes on. He says more in verse 9. He says, for I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. 
And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now notice first, he, he does not boast saying, I'm a man with authority. Even though that's true, in meekness, he first points out, I'm a man under authority. He understands the chain of command, and he knows he's not at the top. The Roman emperor is at the very top. All Roman officers are under his supreme authority. At the same time, the centurion does possess some of his own authority, but he knows it's delegated. All authority was delegated by the emperor. That's why others obeyed him. When, when he gave a command, others would obey because it, it carried imperial authority behind it. If you disobey him, you're just obeying the emperor and you'll face the consequences. This centurion was well-versed in authority. And per his position, he knew how to affect some things by his word. Just by speaking, he could bring things about, although indirectly, to his soldiers or slaves. He would say, go, come, do, three verbs, three commands. The result was just immediate obedience. And so he, he gets this. He believes Jesus can do the same. Only he understands Jesus can do anything. He has all power and all authority with his words. He believes life and death are under Christ's authority. He believes all Jesus has to do is just say, go, and the sickness will go. That, again, that's not a small belief. That is a hard thing to believe, especially back then. And this is a Gentile. We can't say this centurion fully understood the depths of Christ's person, but he clearly believed he came from God. He believed that when Jesus spoke, God spoke. He believed vested in Jesus was God's full, supreme, divine authority. At this point in the ministry of Jesus, as far as we know, there are no recorded examples of Jesus healing long distance. So even this was unprecedented at the time, even for Jesus. But that did not deter the centurion. So, so deep and just implicit was his trust in Jesus as Lord that he asked him, just, just say the word. All you got to do is say the word. And he really believed that. He, he believed wholeheartedly, just say the word. That's not little faith. That is great faith. And that is what Jesus himself says of this man. Now we get some commentary. Number four, a shocking revelation. A shocking revelation. Verse 10. It says, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. When Jesus heard the centurion's response, he was shocked. That word means to marvel, to be struck with astonishment or wonder. He's amazed by what he sees, and he, he expresses his amazement with some commentary. So we, we get some insight here of what Jesus thinks, which is always so valuable. Now, Matthew does not mention these Jewish intermediaries by name, but you can see how he references them here as Jesus speaks this commentary to those who were following him. What does he say? He says, truly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. That itself is a shocking revelation. Jesus is extolling the great faith of this Roman centurion. He does so in a couple ways. First, he's emphatic with the Greek word order here where he's literally saying for emphasis, 
not with anyone, he puts first, not with anyone have I found such great faith in Israel. This centurion was in a class of his own when it came to great faith. And amazingly, that class surpassed anyone in Israel at that time. It did not escape Christ's notice that this man was a Gentile. This Gentile, he did not have the advantages of the Jews, the scriptures, their heritage, which were meant to aid them in receiving their Messiah. But nevertheless, here is this Gentile who evidences a deeper, more profound understanding of Christ's person and authority than any other Jew at the time. His great faith shines not just that, and he believed uh, that Jesus could heal long distance, but that he, he seemed to get this, not really secret, but this, the, the revelation that in Jesus was God and God's power, God's authority. It is the Jews who should have believed Jesus like this. They should have been the ones re- uh, revealing great faith, bowing to Jesus as the Lord who possesses all power and authority. But no, this great faith comes from a Gentile and a Roman officer at that, an enemy. Instead, regarding the Jews, what did Jesus find from them? Not great faith. Again, most often he found, like we said, no faith. Like most were just unbelieving. And of the few that did believe in him, of them he found usually little faith. That likewise amazed Jesus. You know, there's one other time this verb for marvel or amazed was used of Jesus. Something else caused him to marvel. Here, it was the great faith of the centurion. The other time is in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, where he marveled at the unbelief of the Jews in his own hometown of Nazareth. That likewise was shocking. But it was sadly true. The Jews had been flooded with the light of God's revelation, but they proved too blind to see it. Meanwhile, you have many Gentiles, they lived in darkness their whole lives, but they caught just the tiniest ray of Christ's light, and they were ready to believe in him. What Jesus says here serves to foreshadow what would take place after the resurrection. While a remnant of Jews would be saved, most would be hardened in unbelief, and the floodgates of salvation would open for the Gentiles. That is verified by what Jesus says next. Number five, a great reversal. A great reversal. Verses 11, 12. He says after that, verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ's commentary continues. And the great faith of this Gentile prompted Jesus to reveal to those around him the great reversal that was soon coming. It all centers on this table. As Jesus here evokes this idea of what was called the messianic banquet. This actually stems from Isaiah 25. It's where the consummation of God's kingdom was pictured as this great banquet. God was a host. And to eat, drink, and fellowship at this banquet was a picture of the blessings of the kingdom. And Jesus, likewise, is evoking this banquet as a clear symbol of salvation. 
He places its location in the kingdom of heaven. He's not concerned, though, with any other details of this symbol. Only one thing he points out, and that is the guest list. Who will have a seat at this table? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they'll be there. These were the patriarchs of Israel. These were all sinful men, but they were chosen by God and they received his grace by faith. All were men of great faith who clung to the promises of God. But who else? Who else will have a seat at this table? All Jews at the time, they believed their spot was reserved, no matter what, by birthright. They were the physical descendants of Abraham. God promised his blessing to the descendants of Abraham. So, I mean, they're in, right? Automatically. Later, rabbis greatly embellished this idea of the Messianic banquet. And one feature they added was that there would be no Gentiles there. That's part of what made it so great to them. It's like a Gentile-free zone. But that's not the case. God did make several unconditional promises to the nation of Israel as he had big plans for them. He intended to use them to mediate his blessing to all the nations as his plan was always to redeem some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Revelation 7, 9. And while the nation of Israel enjoyed several blessings as a nation among nations, the blessing of salvation only came one way and one way only by grace through faith. That was true for any individual Jew and it's true for Gentiles as well. Gentile salvation was no mystery in the Old Testament. There are plenty of examples. By the time of Jesus, the Jews were way off base to think they were included and the Gentiles were excluded from this kingdom simply by first birth. No, Jew and Gentile, they all partake the same way by the grace of second birth, new birth, which is received by faith. Here, the centurion has faith, even great faith. So should he be excluded from the messianic banquet? Jesus would say, by no means. Like Galatians 3, 7 says, it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. All those who are justified by faith, the same faith of Abraham, become his spiritual descendants, and they gain their spot at the Lord's table by grace through faith. But you see here, Jesus is revealing more than the fact of Gentile salvation in these two verses. This Gentile certainly would recline at the table because of his faith, as would a remnant of Jews. But the thing is, regarding the Jews, it would be just a small remnant. Contrary to their assumptions, the relative number of Jews at this table would be few. Why? Unbelief. Or you, you, you get a seat at this table by grace through faith, but the majority of this nation was going to be hardened in unbelief, rejecting their own Messiah that they have no seat at the table. Meanwhile, a, a huge number of Gentiles would come from east and west. Luke adds north and south. It just means all from all the nations. And they would receive Christ. Most of these seats were going to be filled by Gentiles. The fact of this great reversal is seen elsewhere in the New Testament. This is Paul's main point in Romans 9 through 11. This does not mean that God is finished with Israel as a nation. They still are an elect nation. They, they played an essential part in the Messiah's first coming. 
They'll play an essential part in his second coming. They will eventually come to faith. But until then, Scripture describes this age as what? The time of the Gentiles. Israel is hardened. This age is the time of the Gentiles. Two passages. Luke 21, 24, where Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Likewise, Romans eleven twenty five, Paul says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That hardening will be lifted, but not until the second coming. And for now, this is the time of the Gentiles. And this is effectively what Jesus is teaching. This is also a, spe- a special emphasis Matthew brings out in his gospel, because remember, he's writing this gospel to that remnant of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. And he's writing in part to let them know that, look, this gospel, Christ's gospel, it is meant to go east and west. It's meant to go to the Gentiles as well. It's going to be heartbreaking for them, as it was for Paul, to see the majority of their brethren reject the Messiah and be hardened in unbelief. But that's what's going to happen. And as Jesus says, the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. They will be removed as far as possible from the light of God's kingdom and suffer the torment of hell, along with all those who reject God and his son. Jesus says in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are two images the Lord used several times to depict the anguish of perdition. Interestingly, in Isaiah 25, which speaks of this banquet, it says that God will wipe away the tears from his people on that day as death is overcome. But part of the torment of hell is that their tears are never wiped away. Their suffering is unceasing. Our response to this should be the same as Romans 11. Do not be arrogant toward the lost. We are merely saved by grace. We don't deserve any seat at at this table. If we find one, it is merely by God's grace. Do not be arrogant. But at the same time, don't be unbelieving. Any unbelieving branch will be cut off. And anyone who's believing will be grafted in, says Paul. As for us, the only right response in hearing all of this is just to come to faith. Right? The same faith as this centurion. The only hope in life and death is Christ. You must see your own unworthiness to have a seat at his table. We are the ones not worthy to come under his roof, but by the redemption that's found in his atoning death and resurrection, he can make us worthy. But will you go to him with this same humble, dependent, great faith? For now, let's finish. It ends with this, number six, a full restoration. A full restoration. Last verse, verse 13. It says, and Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. It almost feels like an afterthought at this point, but Jesus does heal the centurion's servant. For a second time in this chapter, he proves what the centurion believed, namely that he really does possess all authority. Like God He can perform his will with just a word because he is Emmanuel, God with us. He grants the centurion's request saying it shall be done for you as you have believed. This can be taken in a causative sense because you have believed. 
there were several times when Jesus healed someone completely irrespective of their faith. His healings were meant to, to attest his power and authority. But there were occasions where Jesus linked his healings to the faith of a person that he might also show and, and teach. This is how you find favor with God, by faith. The servant was healed that very moment. Jesus never touched him, never even saw him. But that didn't matter. His authority, his power, no, no bounds. You just got to think, one moment this servant is lying paralyzed, about to die. The next moment he's in perfect health and he can walk, he can move. He doesn't even know what hit him. It's safe to assume the centurion and others, you know, filled him in on what actually happened here, but he's restored to perfect health. You know what I find so amazing about this story, though, is the whole thing, nothing is said of the faith of the suffering boy. The state of his faith is irrelevant to this whole episode. All that matters here is the faith of the centurion. Jesus said that the boy was healed as the centurion had believed. And as a quick side note, can I just point out, this passage should be the death knell to like charlatan faith healers. There are many faith healers, they attempt to heal a sick person. And when they fail to do so, what's their excuse? They blame the sick person. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't have the faith to be healed. But that's when you take them to this passage. Because you see how the the faith of the sick person is not even in question. It doesn't matter. It's really the faith of the one interceding for him that's in question. In this case, the centurion. So really, if a faith healer fails is not a sign of their own lack of faith. But that is beside the point of this passage. Seeing all this, we're meant to come to the same conclusion. This Jesus is the one who comes from God. This is the one who shows us the Father. This is the one who reveals his will and displays his power. That means to obey Jesus is to obey God. To disobey Jesus is to disobey God. Because of his authority, we had better listen to him, We better follow him and trust him, coming to the same faith as this centurion. And above all, that's that's my prayer, that you would come to faith in Christ like the centurion. And beyond that, like I mentioned at the beginning, that you would come to great faith. You know, throughout Matthew, there's a minor theme of little faith. Many examples of little faith back in chapter 6, verse 30, to the anxious, Jesus says, you of little faith. Chapter 14, verse 31, to a sinking Peter, Jesus says, you of little faith. In chapter 16, verse 8, to confused disciples, Jesus says, you men of little faith. See, lots of little faith. Great faith is rare, but it can be obtained. Look, there's good news here, as we said. It only takes little faith to save. If it's genuine, As with the 12, the Lord is patient and gracious with his true disciples. Faith is meant to grow, and it takes time. Even later in the same chapter, end of chapter 8, down in verse 26, we will find the 12 disciples having a hard time believing Jesus really has all power and authority. There's a storm at sea. They think they're all going to die. But what does Jesus say to them, down in verse 26? Why are you afraid? You men of little faith. And then Jesus stills that storm how? Just a word. Verse 27 says, they marvel at him. 
Same word for marvel in our text, verse 10. Really, though, in a nutshell, that, that is the secret to gaining great faith. Look upon Jesus. See him for who he is. Marvel. And then just trust him completely. In a sense, I know it can be trite or maybe too vague to say, like, just look upon Jesus. But that really is what it's about. I began by giving you examples of great faith, like that faith hall of fame from Hebrews 11. But the application to that is Hebrews 12. Being inspired by such witnesses, we are to run our race with endurance. How? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You need to behold your Savior truly with eyes of faith. You do that by seeing him in his word. We don't have the luxury of being like doubting Thomas, demanding to see the scars in his hands before we believe. That means every disciple of Jesus today must believe in the unseen. There's, there's a base level of faith required. That's why we say it only takes a little faith to save. You're believing in Jesus and his death and resurrection. Genuinely, that's, that's required. That's unseen. But how far does your faith go? Though unseen, will it believe that God is really working all things together for good for those who love him. Though unseen, will it believe that God will really never fail or forsake you? Though unseen, will it believe that though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need not fear any evil? All that stuff, that's hard to believe sometimes, especially when you're suffering. But that is what great faith is, believing even the hard things to believe. You find these promises in God's word, but that's also where you find the one who secures them. That's where you go to to see him, to hear him, to, to know him, to follow him. And so what are you actually doing to fix your eyes upon Jesus? It takes more than a passing glance if you are trying to grow in faith. Are you trying to grow? Is that your prayer? Lord, increase my faith. What are you doing? I would tell you to take the prescription of Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It's where we find him. Read his word. Study it. Meditate it upon it. Memorize it. Pray it. Cherish it. Because that's where you find the Savior, Christ. The focus of the word. And Matthew's gospel presents fear, anxiety, and worry as the results of little faith. That's your problem. If you struggle with that, he says, you just have little faith. Each time, like back in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about anxiety, he says, you have little faith. When he says that each time, he really means you have little faith in me. He is the object of faith. But therein also lies the cure to fear, anxiety, and worry, I might add. Fixing your eyes on Jesus and not looking away like Peter did as he began to sink in the water. Rather, through his word, you believe the unseen. You really believe he has all power and authority. If this Jesus is your Lord, like what is there left to fear? Your Savior has authority over life and death. So even if you die, like what, what are you scared of? Like he said to his disciples in that storm, why are you afraid? What are we missing here? Did you forget who's in the boat with you? Look to this same Jesus. That's how you see your faith grow and become great. 
and you cling to him. And it's that great faith that will carry you through life. Because we all know storms and suffering will come. And they won't always go away. They won't always be healed. But that doesn't matter. As you cling to his word, you know nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not even death. You trust him. In that trust is where you find perfect peace. Anxiety comes when troubles appear bigger than the Lord. But realize nothing is bigger than the Lord. It's just that you're holding your troubles too close to your eyes. They appear bigger than they are. You're out of perspective. Look, I can make my thumb appear bigger than a mountain if I hold it really close to my eye, but it's not. Likewise, look up from your troubles. See your bigger Savior and just cling to him. Such great faith will ensure that you run your race with endurance. You run it well. You finish the course and you'll partake of the glory that is found at his table. The very last, last words of Matthew's gospel are no accident. There we're left not just with the truth, but the person we must fix our hope on. That's where Jesus says at the very end, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Sometimes that too can be hard to believe, but believe it, cling to it. You'll find great faith. Christ is all we need. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, that is our, 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 our hope. It's not just a thing. It's a person. It's Christ the Savior, our Savior and our Lord. We thank you for the gift of your son. After all these years of promise, you sent the Messiah, a suffering servant, and to come to this world, to live among us, and ultimately to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to pay for our sins, that we might be healed. We're grateful we live on this side of the cross that we can look back and behold the glory we see there and and see the the power and authority of of Emmanuel, God come down. We pray you give us eyes of faith and greater eyes of faith to behold him and, and trust him. For any who are here with no faith, even that is a gift of God, lead them to believe. Open their eyes to see the light of this Savior, the only one who can make things right, forgive them, restore them, grant them new birth. As we believe, though, we pray like those disciples. We are all of of an imperfect faith. Help us believe. Increase our faith. And that's only going to come one way as we just look and fix our eyes upon Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We're thankful he will finish the job. He will perfect us and bring us to glory, to that banquet. But until then, help us as we strive with your power to to trust, to grow in faith, and to, to cling to our Savior. Fill our mind with your promises And may we please and honor you with great faith and find the benefits of peace and joy and patience. We long uh, long for you. We long for this Christ to return, to be with him at that table. But until then, just help us to run our race with endurance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.